Well, good evening. Do hope that you are having a good week. I'm sure a tire, tiring week in certain ways, but a week when you've been able to keep yourself focused on the love of God, as Pastor Jones prayed. And I do trust that our time together in God's Word tonight will encourage us along those lines. I was thinking as we were uh, singing, um, you know, we come on a Wednesday night often, often weary in the middle of a week, and we come because we want to, we come because we should. But I was thinking that even if our motivation isn't all that it should be, uh, that God has intentions for us every time he providentially directs our steps to be under the sound of his word. He knows better what we need, and his intentions are better than ours. Uh, I got a note earlier this week that the gentleman who, who prayed with me at the end of the service, where I believe the Lord converted my soul at the age of 17, uh, he uh, went to be with the Lord a few days ago. And I was just thinking, uh, again, as we were singing, of my intentions of going to that youth retreat in April of 1996. My intentions were to have a good time with my friends, to participate in a basketball tournament, uh, to you know, get, get away from home, that I was trying to flee from home, but just something different. And the Lord intended to save my soul. And uh, so the Lord has, has good purposes for us tonight. And, uh, and his love, his love is at the heart of that. I want to invite you to turn your Bible with me uh, first to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. We are going to uh, consider various passages tonight, uh, but this is the first one that we'll come to here in a few moments. Our folks in the AV booth are going to bring up a PowerPoint. Uh, we began a few weeks ago a short series on temptation, and admittedly the series has not been as short as I intended. Um, and we haven't used PowerPoint extensively, but I thought tonight because of the Hopeful, help, hopefully helpfulness of drawing on some of Owen's wording, it would be good to put it in front of us. We, uh, we're not really slavishly following the outline of this book, we're just, we're just drawing some structure from it, and tonight, uh, some direct points. This is a book, as we've discussed, that was published in 1658, Owen was still the dean of Christ Church Oxford at this time, though his time as vice chancellor had ended the year before. He's writing uh, at a time when his, his group, the independents, the congregationalists, had really um, had crested to an ascendancy uh, in the politics of England. Uh, but that that time uh, had, or was, I should say, coming to an end. So Owen is, is seeing 
what's going on around him at Oxford. He's preaching these sermons initially to undergraduate students there. And he has in view a time uh, in the not-so-distant past when things were really looking good. Uh, It seemed that the reform of the church, the Puritans were trying to press forward, was going to happen uh, more extensively than it had in earlier stages. And now Owen's realizing that uh, that ascendancy is not going to last. And the seeming spiritual nature of the times had fallen off. And so he's, he's writing to the people in his day about temptation, but the, the thing about good writing, good exposition of Scripture, is that it endures past uh, the, the initial lifespan in which it was written. The New Testament text that Owen really frames this book on is Matthew twenty six forty one. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. And so we began this consideration by focusing on that word praying. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. And we looked at Matthew 6.13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And what Christ was teaching us to pray And we looked a little bit at his own entering into temptation by the direction of the Spirit and and how the Lord's trials are, are commandeered in certain ways by Satan and twisted in order to destroy us, to lead us astray. And so we need to pray for one another, that that command, that prayer. Lead us not to temptation is a, is a corporate prayer as well as an individual one. To pray by faith, knowing that sometimes God is going to choose for us to be in circumstances that the devil will use to tempt us. And that's all within his sovereign goodwill. And we pray as an enemy of sin. We're not neutral about temptation because temptation is not neutral. Even if we don't give in to the temptation, the temptation itself, whether it comes from without or it arises within, often there's a connection of both. There's a magnetism between our flesh and the allurement of the world that the devil uses. That that, that, that in and of itself is evil. And so, and so we have a posture against it. We're its enemy. And we're praying for rescue. One important aspect of that that we then considered was that to watch and pray, we need to scrutinize temptation. We need to bring it under the microscope, so to speak. And that's when we turn to Genesis chapter 3 to look at how people, perfect people up to that point, in a paradise were led into temptation. And so if we find ourselves engaging in dialogue and being deceived by a dialogue with, with the tempter, if we, if we find ourselves pursuing his offer of false freedom, of an autonomy that, that really doesn't exist, if we 
find ourselves like Adam in that scene in the garden, abdicating our responsibility and pulling back. Or, or if we're prioritizing the material and going after what we see and, instead of what God has taught us spiritually, we know we're entering into temptation. And then we looked at the, at the reality that not only did they enter the temptation, but they were ensnared. They were clearly caught in that temptation. And we saw that by their responses. Their response of covering their sin, using their own resources, of hiding from God, of, of shifting the blame. So we need to realize that watching against temptation really is essential. What Owen is talking about here is not one of those, one of those things that, that, okay, in his day was significant because of, of the certain times, but this, this really is something for us to apply today. Notice this wording, in nothing, he says, does the folly of the hearts of men show itself more openly than in the days wherein we live. He's speaking for himself, but, but, but we could say this just as well today. Then in this, then in this cursed boldness, after so many warnings from God and so many sad experiences every day under their eyes of running into and putting themselves upon temptations. Now there's what, he, what he's saying is, it, it's, it's a, he calls it a cursed boldness to look around at all the, all the problems of sin in the world and not pay attention to the fact that all of those are being aroused by temptation and not give serious consideration to the temptation that is leading to all the problems you see around you. He said that that's, that's not just a missed opportunity. That's, again, his wording is very strong. But I think uh, it's warranted, cursed boldness. Peter has these very encouraging words in his second epistle, Second Peter 2, 9. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. The Lord knows. So we're trying to learn from the Lord how to be delivered out of temptation. What, what would he have us to believe, to do? in order for him to deliver us. Well, we looked last week at the first of, uh, of five points in regards to preventing this entrance into temptation. Keep watching and praying. And our first point was, was simply this. We need to start with prayer. If we're to be conformed to Christ, to have his image stamped in the place of the effaced image of Adam that, that we naturally exude, then we're going to have to follow his example of prayerfulness. That's, that's what he did. He fasted and prayed for 40 days in the wilderness. And we need to respond to his call to come to the throne of grace in heaven. Our propensity, often like the the children of Israel is to be dull of heart, to be slow to believe. And when we come to near the end of Hebrews 4, we, we see ourselves to be completely vulnerable to God's omniscient eye, to the piercing judgment of his word. But these are not reasons to hide. Because the wording there is, therefore, in light of all of this, since we have a great high priest... Come boldly to the throne of grace. 
So we must come, and we must come regularly. Do we want to resist temptation? Do we want to be delivered from evil? We must pray. And, and that's, that's why I've had us turn to 1 Peter 5, because there is a connection here that I think would be helpful for us to reinforce before we move on. I'll read starting in verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. If God is opposed to the proud and he gives grace to the humble, verse 5, then humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Well, how would you humble yourself? Well, there are many Bible answers to that, but this particular Bible answer in this passage is this. Casting all your care on him for he cares for you. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. That's how, you, how, how we would humble ourselves. How do we do that? We're going to do that through prayer. So we humble ourselves by praying and casting our care on the one to whom it is a care for us. He cares for us. But notice the connection as it goes on. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We'll come back to that that language here in a little bit. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. We'll, We'll stop our reading there. One of the lessons for us then in this is is that watching and praying are not separate activities. Okay, they have distinctive features, but they they go together, they're interrelated. Part of God's answering our prayer is sober-minded watching. And part of our watching, in fact, we might say central to our watching, is faith-filled praying. Not just praying when we know that we're in temptation, but a a way of life, a a prayerful way of life, a a humbling ourselves to cast our cares repeatedly on the Lord, knowing that there is an adversary prowling around. To pray, Matthew 6, 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, is to admit weakness, and, and that admission of weakness is part of the faith that God uses to deliver us. Uh, I came across a reference today to a letter Martin Luther sent to his younger colleague and fellow German reformer Philip Melanchthon in 1521. This is still in the very early days of the Reformation in Germany. And he evidently is speaking to Melanchthon about, about real mercy, preach real mercy, but, but in order to preach real mercy, you have to herald the truth of, of real sin. If you don't talk about real sin, then you're not going to know the need for real mercy. But, but he says, in the midst of all that, he says this to Melanchthon. Picture yourself sending this in a text or an email to a good friend tomorrow. He says, pray hard, for you are quite a sinner. Pray hard, Melanchthon. For you are quite a sinner. Unless we think that Luther was a hypocrite, Luther had very, very um, uh, deliberate, specific, uh, humbling things to say about himself, too. So we start with prayer. But secondly, the second of these five, and probably the only other one that we'll be able to give attention to this evening is this. Start with prayer, and secondly, store up gospel provisions. 
store up gospel provisions. Pastor Jones reminded us at the beginning of the year that our hearts are a treasury of either good or evil. So how much thought and attention am I, are you, giving to the inventory of our hearts? Why is it that we are sometimes so weak in the hour of temptation? If we understand that we will encounter temptation, and we will, we have, we do, that this world and our flesh and the devil are terribly real, then we need to prepare. We need to continually repair. Prepare, excuse me. When we don't prepare, it's, it's like failing to, to stock up before a big storm. Now, we, we can debate you know, whether a big storm in Greenville is going to actually be a big storm. But the, but the reality is that if, if you have a sense that, that, that there's going to be a heavy freeze coming or there's going to be a lot of snow or there's going to be something traumatic, you, you prepare for that. Or it's like setting out on a voyage into notoriously difficult waters, choppy waters, open sea, in a canoe. With the hope that things don't get too bad. As I heard Dr. Berg say more than once, we need to build a bigger boat. You know the waters are going to be choppy. You know it's dangerous, but don't take a little boat out into that storm. We need a bigger boat. We need, in Owen's words, to store up gospel provisions. And and Owen asks us to, to do this, to consider the aim and the tendency of temptation. What is Satan trying to do through this temptation, this this? Circumstance that he's resting hold of and twisting for his devious designs. Well, Owen is going to liken this to a bridge. Uh, This bridge is in Oxford, England. It's called Follies Bridge, which I, I think is quite remarkable and ironic. Follies Bridge. This bridge evidently was built in the early 1800s. But it's in the place of a bridge that was first constructed in the 11th century. And it was called for a long time South Bridge. All right, so Owen would not have walked across this bridge. I want to be clear, that's not what I'm saying. But there would have been a bridge there that he would have been aware of. And here's what he says about temptation and Satan's aim and tendency in it. He says, The sin Satan tempts thee to against the law, it is not the thing he aims at. His design lies against your interest in the gospel. He would make sin but a bridge to get over to a better ground to assault thee as to your interest in Christ. You understand what he's saying? He's saying, yeah, on one side of this, there's there's a temptation. But actually, Satan's not really after conquering that side of the bridge. He's using temptation to get over to the other side. 
And the other side is what he's calling your interest in the gospel. And that's why he is encouraging us to store up gospel provisions. He goes on, and now I'm paraphrasing, to say that one day Satan will deceive you that this temptation is okay because you already have an interest in Christ. You're, you're in, you're okay, you don't need to worry about it. This is what, you may, may remember, we talked about the two aspects of temptation that Owen highlights. One is allurement, seduction, attraction. That's the attraction. It's glittering. He says, this is okay because you're already in Christ. Come on in. The next day, he will accuse you that you have no interest in Christ because you have entered into temptation. He gets you in, and then he throws down the gate and locks the door, and he uses the other prong of temptation. There's allurement, there's attraction, and then there is, there is a frightment, there is terror. It's okay, you're in Christ. The next day, there's no way you could be in Christ. How could you ever do that? And this should not surprise us, right? Satan is the deceiver. Revelation 29 says he's the deceiver of the whole world. And he's the accuser. Revelation 12, 10, the very next verse, says he's the accuser of our brethren. Satan uses allurement, attraction, and he uses scare tactics, terror. And so, Owen says, you need to store up provisions. You need a bigger boat. Now, what's he talking about with provisions? Well, he's not actually talking about a blizzard. He's talking about war. And Owen knew war. He served as a chaplain in the parliamentary army under Oliver Cromwell. That's, that's part of why he rose to such prominence in England during the 1650s. In 1649, he spent probably about four months in this castle. This is Dublin Castle in Ireland. And so you, you, can, you can imagine that he's thinking about a fortification like that. And he's thinking about the possible siege of a place like that and holding your ground. And with, with that picture in mind, Hear hear these words. He says, be sure to lay, here's the point, to lay gospel provision in store against the approaching of temptation. When an enemy draws nigh to a fort or castle to besiege and take it, oftentimes if he finds it well manned and furnished with provision for a siege and so able to hold out, he withdraws and assaults it not. If he sees that there's ample provision and that that fortification is going to withhold for a long duration of time, the enemy withdraws. He's suggesting that that's the picture. You may not be in temptation right now. Store up gospel provisions anyway. That's how we prevent entering into temptation, Owen says. And I think it would be helpful, especially since we've referred to this passage in the last couple of messages, to to turn now to Genesis 3 and to look at how the Lord has provided for sinners from the very start, from the very outset of fallen human history, the Lord has provided for sinners who will believe and who will store up this provision. 
There are two aspects of this that I think it would be helpful for us to consider. This idea of storing up gospel provisions. First of all, the material. Okay, what, what are the provisions that we're storing up? And then secondly, the means. What, what, what are the means by which we are gathering this material? Okay. Now, we store up, in terms of material, we store up what God has provided. If we can go back to this, this picture of this fort and, and, and stockpiling provisions, the, the picture is not that, that we go out in impressive ways and create provisions and then bring them in as if it all depends on us. Yes, we have to store up the provision, but the point is we're storing up what God has already provided. We know, we're familiar with verse 15 of this chapter, how that in the midst of his righteous judgment, his cursing of Adam and Eve, of the whole earth, certainly of Satan the serpent, right in the midst of that, actually in speaking to the serpent, he gives what theologians usually call the first announcement of the gospel, the proto-evangelium. Yes, the serpent is going to bruise the heel of this seed of Eve, but that man whom we come to find out as Revelation progresses and unfolds, the God-man is going to crush the head, going to bruise permanently, decisively, eternally the head of that serpent. There's another really beautiful thread, though, in this chapter. There is an announcement of, of the gospel, at the beginning of the gospel, you might say. But, but there is also a wonderful provision that is pictured here. Um, I want us just briefly to look at a series of words. Okay? If you'll look up above the chapter break at chapter 2, verse 25... It says, the man and his wife, Adam and Eve, were both naked and were not ashamed. That, that word, translated naked, clearly represents innocence, right? Everything is, in chapters 1 and 2 is good. Innocence, purity, good. But the very next verse says, the serpent was more crafty. And in the original, the word crafty is actually a play on words. It's, it sounds almost identical. It's, it's actually a vowel marking different than the word naked in chapter 2, verse 25. So, so Satan enters in on purity and he craftily finds a way to twist away from it. And then in verses 7 and 10 and 11, we, we see this theme appearing again because after they sinned, they, they knew they were naked and they were now rightly ashamed. And that's a, that's a synonym of the word in chapter 2, verse 25. 
again, sounds very similar. The word in chapter 3, verse 1 is not the same word. I don't want to um, uh, be mistaken to, to be saying that. It's, it's a different word, but it sounds, it's, it's clearly connected, all right? The Holy Spirit is breathing out this word through Moses' pen so that there, there is a theme unfolding here. This word, the word in verses 7 and 10 and 11, is used 10 times, the first three of these, in this chapter. Most of the rest, all but one, I think of the other references, are in Ezekiel. Think of Ezekiel 16 and, 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 the, and the baby lying in its squalor and blood and, and before the Lord comes and rescues it. There's a consistent emphasis with this particular term on vulnerability, on shame. That's why it's, it's used here at this point in the narrative. But that's not where the story ends, because you find in verse 21, not only that there's been a promise, but there has been an actual provision made. The Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And that word skin, it's a different word, but again, it sounds almost identical to these previous words. Now, more important than the verbal resemblance of these, of these words in, in, in the original is what we can see very, very clearly when we read our English Bibles, and that's the theological reality. Because, because Genesis is the first of five books, and, and, and one of those books, okay, these, these books are not being written over decades, okay? In close succession, and one of those other books is Leviticus, and Leviticus has all of this detailed instruction about what? About sacrifices, about offerings, about the necessity of, a, of, of blood atonement. As the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 9, verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there, there is no forgiveness. There's no remission of sin. And, and so the Lord who had made the heavens and he had made two great lights and he had made the beasts of the field, he was now making garments to clothe Adam and Eve. They made a cloth of fig leaves that was entirely insufficient. God slew an animal and made garments of skin to clothe them. There's clearly the indication of what these initial listeners and readers would have connected to the book of Leviticus, of of, of atonement. God's deliverance, his good news, comes through the provision of blood, life for life. And so this, this is Owen's counsel to us. He says, a man may, nay, he ought to lay in provisions of the law also. He doesn't want to be misunderstood that we don't need the law. But his point is going to be be not that we need less than the law, but we need more than the law. Fear of death, hell, punishment with the terror of the Lord in them, but these are far more easily conquered than the other. In other words, if we use these defend off temptation, they do have a usefulness. The Lord does intend for us to have them in our minds and hearts, but they are not enough 
because they in and of themselves cannot defend us against the temptation of the deceiver. So he goes on. But store the heart with a sense of the love of God in Christ, with the eternal design of his grace, with a taste of the blood of Christ and his love in the shedding of it. Get a relish of the privileges we have thereby, our adoption, justification, acceptation with God. Fill the heart with thoughts of the beauty of holiness as it is designed by Christ for the end, issue, and effect of his death. And you will, in an ordinary course of walking with God, have great peace and security as to the disturbance of temptations. Owen is counseling us that that we have to stockpile and keep stockpiling the fortification of our soul with the gospel, store up gospel provisions. Paul says in Colossians 2, 6 through 8, as you have received Christ, received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And then he uses this language, this, this sounds like storing up to me. Having been firmly rooted, now being built up in him, Having your faith, or excuse me, and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. This is the one in whom all the fullness of God, of deity, dwells in bodily form. And in him, you and I have been made complete. This is not something that we get just at conversion. It's not something, brothers and sisters, that we can simply come to Sunday services and hear a good sermon and and have adequate provision. The problem is not with the provision. The the problem is with, with our weakness, our lack of faith, really, to continue to stockpile these gospel provisions that we might not enter into temptation. Very quickly, that's the material. What are, what are the means? Well, very simply, we store up what God has provided. How? By, by faith. By faith. We won't take the time to turn to it, but Paul says this in Romans 4.16, For this reason, it is by faith. What is by faith? The The promise of righteousness in Christ is by faith. Why? Well, here's the reason Paul gives in this passage. In order that it may be in accordance with grace. The promise of righteousness is of faith. It's only through faith alone in order that it would be according to grace. What's the point? Why why faith? Why do we access these provisions? Why do we store them up by faith? Because because faith is a self-emptying grace. When we're going to Christ over and over as our Savior to be our defender, our rescuer, our advocate, we're emptying ourselves of ourselves. God is using that to to deaden the the magnetism, the the, the shards, the scrapnel of of flesh that are so attracted and allured to Satan's devices. 
if we do not go day after day to God's word and believe what he has told us about his salvation in Jesus Christ and who he is and therefore who we are in him and therefore how we must live in him and how there are ample provisions for that. If we don't go day by day believing that, we're going to rely on the arm of flesh. And in that arm of flesh is all of these shards of sinfulness that are so attracted to that temptation. And so, not only must we pray, we must store up gospel provisions. And this, this faith, it's, it's not... It's not something that brings us credit. If we're truly trusting the Lord, He gets the glory. I don't know how helpful an illustration this will be, but we'll give it a try. Some of you have been to the wilds. Some of you have been there in the last few years when they had the zip line. Some of you have been on that zip line. It's it's really a beautiful view. Now, some people don't go on that zip line. And we're not going to judge them for that. But my point is about us who have experienced that. We went on the zip line. So who gets the credit for that? Who who gets the credit for that, that amazing apparatus? Who, who, gets, who gets the credit for the, for the vision to have something like that that would, that would give people an opportunity to see God's creation in remarkable ways that most of us would, would not have other opportunities to do? Who gets credit for the creation? Who, who gets credit for those views, the, the, the falls and, 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 and on down? I don't get the credit just because I walked the trail and got strapped up and, and walked, walked up those stairs onto the plank, okay? When, when we believe, when we trust God, we're merely receiving. It's an instrument by which we receive His grace. He gets the glory, some people don't believe. Yes, there are some people who go on it and some people who don't. But the, but the glory doesn't go to the people who are on it. The glory goes to the person who has made all of this. And the, the credit to the people who, who crafted something so that we could am- enjoy that amazing beauty. You know, brothers and sisters, we, we cannot tire, we cannot tire of the basic truths of scripture when we are struggling with temptation we cannot look for antidotes that are new that are ingenious that maybe haven't been discovered before that that are that are peculiar to us satan wants us to think that we're unique that we're on our own that no one's ever faced things like this before that we that we can't go to the lord we must shrink back from him that's part of the deception The Lord has said from the very outset, I have made provision. This is for you. This love is for you. So come back to it day after day after day. 
and be delivered by my grace. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that he is a faithful mediator, a great high priest. And we ask, O Lord, that even this week, as you give us life and breath, that you would enable us to trust him, to abide with him, in him, as he abides with us. And we pray that through that you might give us victory, deliverance, that would be to your honor and glory. And we pray that you would use our time of prayer in the moments to come toward those ends, that we might bear one another's burdens, that you might use that for the edification of your people. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.